All right, well, let's turn us on. Let's begin. Morning, everyone. Thank you so much as we begin a new study. We'll be in studying Paul's letter to the Colossians. It's in the New Testament for some of those of you who are a little thin on your biblical background in the New Testament. Again, thank you for being here. Thank you for being a part of the study, the teaching, the application of the Word of God. As we begin, I do want one more time to thank Bill for what I thought was a wonderful teaching in Philemon. And if you missed that teaching, let me encourage you to get the CDs or go online, however they do it nowadays. Everybody tells we don't do it this way. We do it. Whatever way is done today, I still remember the old Victrola, you know, the one you wind up and really the one side of records we have one or two of those and the big megaphone and listening you know that's how some of us are we remember those things but thank you for being here this morning let me encourage you this room should be filled with people not because Peter Davidson is teaching <clears throat> but because the Word of God is being administered and so I don't make an apology for that I thank you for being here but let us be disciple makers let us be evangelists even within the church and encourage our friends and those whom we have seen just a few times visitors to be here to be partakers of what God has given us one of the most incredible opportunities and that is to freely assemble and listen to the Word of God Patrick was praying this morning about a little bitty bit of a seed of the gospel now in North Korea and there are countries in which if we did this this morning, folks would be in here taking our pictures, coming to our homes next week, and taking us away, never to be found again. So let us revel in the freedom that God has given us and use it for freedom's sake. This morning as we begin our study in Colossians, <clears throat> I want to just make a general statement and then we'll be applying this throughout the study. And that is this. We're going to see that Colossians, as is true for the rest of the letters of the New Testament, essentially, this is a letter addressed to the new creation community. This is a letter that needs to be taught and understood, not in isolation from that which has occurred, but within the continuity, the moving along, the fulfillment the progression of God's Word that we have been studying all along and so as we look at Colossians and as we study it and we'll look at specific illustrations of this I want to encourage you to view Colossians within the glasses or concept if you would of the first three chapters of Genesis because if we don't do that we're not getting what God wants to give us in a larger context and I believe that as the Apostle Paul writes this letter this man is steeped as these Apostles were in the Word of God and the Word of God to them in those days was the Old Testament as you know the New Testament was beginning to be written so when they say the word and the scriptures except in very very few instances 
they are talking about the scriptures of the Old Testament, especially beginning in Genesis and going through as God reveals his plan. As started in Genesis, fall came in in Genesis 3, 6, and God continues on. You remember the study we went through, what, for 22 weeks or whatever concerning that illustration, that revelation, what God is doing in Genesis. So let's look at Colossians, not in isolation, but let's pick up what Paul is saying in his encouragement, his instruction, his commands, his references, and let's see if we will not begin to identify Old Testament illustrations and understandings, especially, as I said, the new creational community as demonstrated in Genesis 1, to 28. Those will be, that will be, if you would, the seed of what Colossians is all about and the outgrowth of what those three verses are all about. Father, thank you so much for your word. What a spectacular God you are. That first you would share yourself with us in creating the world. Knowing beforehand that as you created, Adam would rebel, necessitating the entrance into this world of sin, this world of fallenness, this world that is governed temporarily by the God of this world, Satan, that the Son of God would have to come to redeem, to restore, to create a new, a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells forever. Father, and in this process, you've not only redeemed us because of the resurrection of Jesus, but you have given us your word. Father, thank you for this. We know that as we hear and study and heed your word, we will be enriched, we will be strengthened, we will be encouraged, we will be led, we will be provided for, we will be protected, <clears throat> we will be adjusted in, in uh, discipline. Father, everything necessary that you were doing in our life will happen because your spirit lives in us and because you promised it through your word. So we thank you for this, Father. We pray that as we study this word, as in every time we open your word, and we anticipate and expect this because you promised it, that you are in the process of continuing a great and mighty work in us so that your name may be glorified in us and through us. Father, thank you for this in Christ because of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, beginning our letter to the Colossians as a general background statement, you know, it's spiritually axiomatic. Do you know what the word axiomatic means? A self-evident truth. This is self-evident. It is spiritually self-evident, axiomatic, that God's truth will always be opposed by a lie. <clears throat> now, you can remember this. Every time God's truth is uttered and is proclaimed, there is going to be opposition from the enemy. Every time you experience something of the work of God in your life, some way, in some manner, whether overtly or very subtly, there is going to be an attempt to erode, to diminish, to deflate, to move off from the track of truth, that word, that work that God has given. So don't be surprised. Remember John 16, 33. In this world you will experience what? Tribulation. 
or tribulation, if you like to say it that way. He said, you're going to get it, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. So first, let us be a people that as we study, as we move forward in Christ, as we are learning, as we are seeking more to be obedient, there is going to be a rising difficulty coming against that. Anybody experience anything like that at all at any time in your life? We all are evidence of that work. The essence of this opposition, in particular to this church, but in general, will always center on the person and work of Christ. Every time we hear the truth of the gospel proclaimed, the attack against the truth will always center on the person of Christ, his deity, and on the work of Christ that Christ took upon himself as the incarnate Son of God, all of our sin went to the cross, paid the full, final, and forever price and penalty for our sin, endured on in himself what we should have endured of the wrath of God. When he died, all of that was buried. God saw that it was done and declared it as a finished work it is finished, John 19, 30, no more to be paid, nothing else owed. And in his resurrection, now God, because of our forgiveness in the death of Christ by the shedding of his blood, now God, in the resurrection of his son, having exalted him to the highest place, now brings forth the Holy Spirit by the command of Jesus himself. And the Holy Spirit now is God's person in us who now adopts us who applies the forgiveness of Christ, who calls us sons and daughters, and who empowers us with all of the power of God to begin to live as the children of God. So the person of Christ and the work of Christ, that's always at the center of an attack against the truth. So just be ready. Just be ready. And, and I have so much more to say about that, but really time doesn't allow, but I'll say a couple little things in any way. It is patently obvious, and if it isn't, you need to get better glasses spiritually on. You need to get better spiritual hearing aids. You need to have a better ability to spiritually sniff. <clears throat> it is patently obvious. Now listen to what I'm going to say carefully. That anything and everything that is produced in this world by the God of this world in 1 John 5, 40, 5, 19, the whole world lies in the lap of the power of the evil one. This world system has an agenda being led by the enemy, and that is to erode the gospel, okay? It is to erode the gospel. We have to walk in this world as sober-minded people, walking, as Paul said, circumspectly, meaning watching every step everywhere we go not being afraid but being sober-minded being realistic understanding that there is an enemy out there who wants to erode <clears throat> in every way through any means at every moment what god has done in our lives so let's walk carefully in this world so we see this activity of act, uh, 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 opposition this is what paul warned the church in acts 20 29 when he went to visit Ephesus on his way to Rome he says this to the elders I know that after my departure 
fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And even from among your own selves, from within the church, will rise up men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Church, be alert. Be alert. Nothing the enemy does is innocent. It all has an agenda to destroy. John 10, 10. Remembering that for three years I did not cease and died night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So you see, the problem with such attacks is that they subtly add error that looks like truth. And that's the danger. It, it's close to truth. It sounds like truth, but it's error. And when it comes in, it will begin to erode the truth. Now, this was a problem in the Colossian church. The Colossian church was probably, as you probably already know, having listened to Bill and Philemon, was birthed through the preaching of Epaphras, who was probably a disciple of Paul, whom Paul had sent to the city. And as Epaphras preached the gospel, people began to be saved and a church was formed. The church, as you remember, again, from Bill's class, met in the home of Philemon, who, and the church was comprised of both Greek and Roman members. I'm sorry, Greek and Jewish people. Jews and Gentiles. Greek is a generic term often used by the New Testament to mean any non-Jew. So it could have been Greeks, it could have been Romans, it could have been a bunch of other folks. But at any rate, it was Jewish people and Gentile people. And so what's the problem in the church? Paul learned that the church was beginning to experience the infiltration of false religious teachings and practices which promote, prompted his letter. He had taught what was true. Epaphras had taken that gospel to Colossae and was teaching the truth, laying down the foundations of truth to the church. But coming into the church were other teachings that certain religious practices and, and, and theories and, and philosophies also had to be adhered to in order that their salvation must needed to be either improved or continued. Something added to the gospel that said it is necessary for you to do this and to go here and to practice this in order to complete the work of Christ or in order to move it along toward maturity. Anything that's added to the gospel of grace undermines or erodes the very gospel of grace. So, for instance, the Jewish teaching that required the observance of holy days, the forbidding of particular foods and drinks, and the necessity of circumcision. Now, it wasn't that they practiced certain days, you know, to come together. It wasn't that if they wanted to abstain from certain foods or drinks at particular times that this was a problem. It was the requirement that if you don't do these things, you have a problem. You must do these things in order to be maintained in Christ, in order to complete the work of God. Do you see the distinction? So, for instance, for Lent... <clears throat> You may say, for Lent, I really want to observe in order to honor the Lord. I would like to abstain from eating meat. I just want to do that. I feel that this is the leading of the Lord. I want to fast from meat during Lent. Fine, do it. There's no problem at all. But there's a difference between that and having said, 
you must not eat meat during Lent because if you do, it is sacrilege. Do you see the difference? Do we understand the difference? I don't want you to leave here today saying, Peter Davidson said, we, you know, here, to, no. We have freedom led by the Spirit and informed by the Word of God. We have a lot of freedom here. But we don't want to take those things that God has given us freedom and make laws and regulations of them that come in and begin to debilitate the work of the gospel in us. That's what's happening in the Colossian church. You see, the acceptance of these teachings and practices would have meant that Christ and his work were not sufficient. What Jesus did on the cross is not sufficient. We must do certain things in order to complete his work. In order to complete his work. So his work on the cross is either it is completed or it is not completed. He said it's completed. But if we begin to teach other things that in any way infer or in any way begin to cause us to believe that his work is not complete, I need God's blessing this week, so I'm going to read God's word more this week. Uh-oh. You know, we're going out of town and I need some finances, whatever. Uh, I, I need to just give God a couple more hours of prayer this week in order to get it from him. I need to go to Sunday school because I know if I don't, I'm immature. Well, I know, I can't say that. No. Let's see. We got to go much better a deal than that. You see, requirements that what we do adds. Now you may say, I need to read my word more because I need to know God more, experience him more, and fellow. Yes. I need to increase my prayer life because my, my activity in the spirit and I need that nourishment. Yes. Your mom and them will always tell you, eat your vegetables. Yes, let's eat the vegetables and the, meat, uh, and the um, meal of God. But let's not make it something that if we don't do it a particular way, in a particular time, in a particular amount, therefore we are not fulfilling the requirement. I'm sorry, we are not. We're adding to Christ. We're, not, we're helping him move us along. God doesn't need any help in that. So the solution, <clears throat> only the truth of God's word is able to protect them or us from the danger of such teaching. Only the truth. Remember John 8, 31? If you abide in my word and my word abide in you, what? Isn't it interesting when we always say, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. That is not the truth. That is not a true statement. It's not. Oh, uh, well, brother, doesn't the Bible say that? No. Jesus didn't say that, did he, Scott? He said, you shall what? Abide in my word, and my word abide in you. Then you shall know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. You see? Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you, is the word of God. No, it isn't. That is not the truth. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. So let's be careful how we throw these little phrases out, and we don't connect it in the right way. Therefore, it becomes a stumbling block because people think, well, wait, 
I know the word of God, and I'm still having problems. Oh, no. You see, you didn't connect it to the right place. You see, do you understand how subtly the enemy loves these little sound bites of the word of God? We need to know the word in a much greater and more full way. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13. Remember that? We quote it all the time. But it is not the truth apart from verses 11 and 12. And you're going to have to go figure out what 11 and 12 say in Philippians 4. I'm not going to tell you. You see, Paul's goal in Corinthians, I'm sorry, in Corinth, what is the name of this church? Thank you. In Colossae, Paul's goal is to show that Christ is indeed sufficient. Why? Because he is preeminent over all religions, philosophies, and practices. And we need to get this in our hearts better. I need to get it. Every temptation that I have ever experienced is a temptation that says, is Christ really preeminent? It is a question that Satan gave to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3. Hath God said, is, does he have the right? Will he do it? You know, all of these questions about the person and the integrity and the work and the purpose and meaning that God has given in their creation. Is Christ preeminent? Every temptation. And then I am tempted to question the preeminence of Christ. And then when I sin, I am stomping on the preeminence of Christ. Every time I sin, I am purposefully stomping on the preeminence of Christ. So the next time I sin or next time you sin, it would be advantageous for you and me to say this. I am sinning. And in the process of me thinking this, me doing this, me going here, me doing whatever it is, in the process of my doing these things, I purposefully decide, Jesus, you are not preeminent. Now, how many of us would be willing to say it that way? And yet, that's what our sin screams to God. Is Christ preeminent? And we'll talk about what preeminent means a little while later down the road. So, as we study the letter, let's see how the Holy Spirit, let's allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us about any practices or beliefs that don't originate from the Scriptures. And so, I think I can get through most of this today. Paul's greeting. Paul starts the letter, typical greeting. Paul starts, way at. I mean, that's what this translates into modern English in New Orleans. What's happening? Where you at? Colossians. Okay, Paul greets the church. Let's read it. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Paul. Who is Paul? His natural creden credentials. Let me read his natural credentials who he is in the flesh, and this comes from Philippians 3, 4 through 6. We'll give you the reason he does this, but he tells us his credentials. He says this, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, if you think you are somebody and that what you do in the flesh and all your things can earn you favor with God, let me tell you something. I got better than all of you. I have it better than all of you. He says, I have more. I'm circumcised in the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, I persecuted the church, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. That's his natural credentials. But if you were to read further, you'd find out that Paul says, hey, all of that 
counted as what? Rubbish. None of it did anything. It was diddly squat. Nothing when it came to God's decision to save me. It was nothing. I mean, how many of us, even in Paul in the natural, how many of us would like to stand morally judged against Paul even in the natural? How many of us would want to say, hey, I'll put my obedience up against Paul. I wouldn't want to touch the thing. Even in the natural, as a Pharisee, before he was saved, I wouldn't want to get near the morality issue and be judged against him. And, you know, I, I'm going to come out way, way bad on this. And yet, it had nothing to do with his being saved. Certainly, it was God's work of bringing him to a place and maturing him, uh, I mean, preparing him for usefulness. But in and of itself, it did not ingratiate him to God. Paul's spiritual credentials. Now listen to this. He was a believer. 1 Corinthians 15, 8. Last of all, as one untimely born, Jesus appeared also to me. You remember in Acts chapter 9, Jesus appeared to Paul. Paul was saved by grace, by the grace of God, through faith. The grace of God appeared to Paul. Remember Jesus on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He knows us, the Lord. Who are you? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And Paul said, yes, I receive you. I believe I receive you. I submit to you. I surrender myself to you. That's the essence of being saved, the intrusion of God's light into our life, causing us to say yes. Not me looking for the light and finding it and saying, here I am. It's me walking along or doing whatever I want to and doing in the world and them just shuffling along. The light of God. And me responding by yes. Amen? Remember Genesis 1-3. And God said, let there be light. And that same light of creation that occurred in Genesis 1-3 occurs in Acts 9 for Paul and occurs in every one of our lives who've been saved. Amen? It's a repetition of what God has been doing from the beginning. Aren't you glad to hear that? He's an apostle. The Greek word is apostolos. It only means a delegate or an ambassador sent with the authority of another to speak. So in and of itself, the word apostolos doesn't mean anything other than, hey, Donnie, will you go take this message to Joe and tell him what I said? This man would be my apostle. He's acting in my authority to go somewhere to do or say or speak something in regard to what I have asked him to do. That's what that means in a general sense. But, of course, in the church's sense, it means something much larger than that. It means someone who has come from God having received that authority to go speak the word of God. He's an apostle of Christ. He's belongs, he belongs to Christ. He was, a delegate, he was delegated by Christ to speak and act with the authority of Jesus Christ himself. So what Paul says in these letters is the living, vibrant, specific, authoritative word of God to the church. So no wonder you see so much study out there that wants to undercut and undermine Paul and his authority and whatever. Certainly it is. It's a constant thing in theological cent uh, centers to be questioning, did Paul did this and that? He couldn't have said that. How could they? Because you see, if you can undermine and in any way shake the 
validity and the veracity of the apostle, then everything he does and says can be shaken. You see what happens. We must be clear on this. We must know our word of God. Of Christ. Christ. How many of us have heard the word Christ before? I mean, haven't we heard this a lot? Now, when the church today thinks of Christ, his word Christ, we think of Jesus. And, and our perspective too often is very, if you would allow me to say this, very narrow. But when this man says Christ, he gathers up an enormous background of spiritual activity from the Old Testament. When this man says Christ, this word is pregnant with meaning and power. Let me just a little bit tippy-toe through it. The word Christ is the Greek Christos, and the word Christos is the translation of the Hebrew Michach, or Messiah. The word simply means anointing. It is to pour oil upon, to anoint, signifying God's personal use. Now, in a general sense, it had nothing to do with God. But then it was used, when it's used for God's purpose, it took on the personality and the power and the purpose of God in the anointing. So the Hebrew word mishash means to anoint. It just means to pour oil on. Or for those of you from New Orleans, Earl, which is pouring Earl on the person. But it is a physical activity that indicates a spiritual work of God's calling, of his anointing, of his gifting, of his sending, of the presence and power of this personal God who will be with this person and in this person, and this person will travel with that authority, that apostolos authority, wherever he goes, because he's been anointed. He's had the oil poured upon him. The oil very often in the Old Testament, too, is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. But again, too much to go into today. Remember in Exodus 28, 41, Moses is being given instruction concerning the priesthood, Aaron being the first priest, remember, of the Levitical tribe. And you shall anoint, it's that word mishash, it's that word Messiah. You shall anoint and ordain Aaron and his sons and consecrate them for God's use. You see, consecrate, set apart, that they may serve me as priests. So anyone who was anointed in the Old Testament for the purpose of God was consecrated, was set apart for special and specific purpose for God. It is a setting apart, a coming away from. It is not a person who can do just the general things that he wants to anymore. God has called and ordained. You will be my anointed person and your life and your purpose on earth and your very being and future has to do with one thing only, my purpose. Anything and everything to the contrary is getting in the way of that purpose, that anointing. It's a huge word for Paul. It's all over the Old Testament. I mean, things were anointed. People were anointed. Animals were, I mean, God is pouring out his spirit for particular consecration and use. And in each one of these, there is something indicative of the power and person and the purpose of God himself. He is displaying himself in this anointing. Daniel 9.25, you may have recognized this one. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore, that's restore Israel, you know, go out and go back home and rebuild. Remember the, uh, uh, they were in Persian, uh, uh, they were in Babylonian Empire. Uh, 
bondage for 70 years. The Persians came in, conquered, and then the king of Persia gave this word. Hey, you can go back to your country to restore. And to build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one. An anointed one. A man is coming who will be anointed. Specifically, and that purpose is Zerubbabel. But Zerubbabel, again, this is bigger than just one man Zerubbabel. It has to do with the coming of God's man himself who will fulfill all that Adam lost in his sin that forfeited that he forfeited and in this one man this anointed man he will gather up and fulfill everything of the lost creation he will judge it all in himself it will all be put to death in his own death and in his resurrection a brand new forever perfect pure creation will come out of the grave in Christ can you say amen I mean come on there's a better news that's who we are the word Jesus is the Christ. So who is this man? Remember in Matthew 16, 16, Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the anointed one. You are the Messiah. You are the Christos. So Paul is a believer, an apostle of Christ. Then what's the next word after Christ? Look at the Bible. What's the next word after Christ? Jesus. Jesus. Okay, Jesus. What is Jesus? First of all, Jesus is the name of the eternal Son of God incarnate. Jesus is the name of the eternal Son of God who becomes a man. That's his name. The name Jesus is really a combination of two names. Remember in Exodus 3.14, you may have seen the movie. In Exodus 3.14, Moses is standing before this bush is being not consumed, the flames coming out, and God is speaking to him. He's already said, I am, you know, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I'm going to send you to Egypt, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And the, Moses said, what's your name? In other words, who are you, and what is your purpose and abilities? That's what he's asking. Not, hey, AJ, what's your name, babes? It's who are you? Who are you in person? Who are you in purpose? Who are you in power? Who are you? Your name, your person, your purpose, and your power. That's what Moses is asking here. And in 14, he says, tell them that Yah, I am, hath sent you. This is my eternal name to all generations forever. Yah. How many of us sing hallelujah? Haleo means to be praising, and Yah means the name of God's person, power, and purpose forever. So when we sing hallelujah, we are singing to Yah, Yah, that's his name. That's still his name. So Yah is part of the name of Yahshua or Jesus. Hosea, the word Hosea means salvation. Hosea, the Hebrew means salvation or deliverer. In Numbers 13, 16, listen to what it says. And remember Moses and the people in the wilderness. And Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Yahshua. So Moses changes his name from Hosea to Joshua. Hosea means what? Salvation, deliverer. Yah means the name of God, I am. So when you put them together, Yahshua or Jesus, here you come out with his name. I am myself salvation. I am the deliverer. Or you may say the Lord who saves. This is what that name means. So in Matthew 1, 21, one angel says to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he shall save my people from their sin. You see, it is a name of the Son of God who became a man 
and in that name we have the name of God himself and we have the purpose of his incarnation our salvation we have both of them in that one name of Jesus Yah and Hosea coming together and giving us Joshua or Yeshua or Jesus two or three different ways of saying it you know however it's translated you remember in Luke 3 22 remember we talked about Christ what does Christ mean it's taken for the Hebrew which means what what anointed to pour upon to come upon and remember we said the oil is a symbol Gordon of what the Holy Spirit coming upon so Christos the anointed one look at Luke chapter 3 verse 22 we see God the Father anointing his son with the Spirit in the baptism at John, John the Baptist baptism of baptizing him in the wilderness remember Jesus comes to the wilderness I need to be baptized well, I want to be baptized he said well but I should be baptized no we need to do it this way because fulfilling all righteousness so Jesus goes under the water a picture of the death of the old creation comes up out of the water the uh, the picture of the resurrection or the new creation you see and when Jesus comes up out of the water what happens a dove comes down and here's what happens and the Holy Spirit descended on upon him poured out as with oil in bodily form like a dove and a voice from heaven said you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased you see this is similar to the Exodus 28 Aaron is anointed poured out is oil Aaron is the first high priest Jesus is the last high priest you see and as Aaron was anointed Jesus is anointed for the purpose of being God's priest on earth to deal with sin to bring the sacrifice of himself to God at the altar of the cross so that God will punish this sacrifice and in the death of that sacrifice the punishment for God's people is completely and forever over So that on the third day in the resurrection, this anointed one rises from the dead, never to die again. And in him we were there. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. We were there in God's mind and in God's purpose. Even, if we sent, even though we had never been created, we were still there in the purpose of God. Your name, my name was written in him. And then we were born into this world at a particular time and God saved us at a particular time and is using us for his particular purpose as his redeemed people redeeming us in the cross of Christ through the resurrection. Why was Jesus anointed by the Spirit? Why? What does it mean? He was anointed to be God's last Adam. You remember in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. He was the last Adam. He is the Adam who is raised up by God to be the one who fulfills the purpose of the first Adam's creation. The first Adam was created to function through the mandates and obedience to fulfill God's purpose of filling the earth with progeny. Fill the earth with the knowledge of who I am and my will. And he fails, and so the entire Old Testament looks forward to through types and shadows of a coming one who will be who Adam was to be but was not through his disobedience 
And so in Jesus, all of that is collected and fulfilled in this last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. You see, he came to recover God's original intention in the first Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam, the first Adam, as in the old Adam, as in the Adam who fell, the condemned Adam, as in Adam everyone dies, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The second Adam. This is why Jesus was anointed, to perform this ministry, this work, this bringing about the purpose of God in creation. You see, we were saved not because we needed to be saved or whatever. We were saved to fulfill and as the fulfillment of the grand eternal purposes of God. Can you say amen to that? This is why we were saved. See, this means that the Son of God became a man for the purpose of fulfilling what God had intended in Adam. I told you in the very beginning this morning that this letter, like all the others, must be seen and read and understood within the light of Genesis 1 through 3. If we don't see it that way, we are going to miss enormous implications and revelation of God, and we're going to keep our understanding of the Word too narrow. We want to see it in a much broader and larger perspective, <clears throat> and then we want to see from Genesis to Revelation a comprehensive revelation and work of God, <clears throat> not something that was different in the old and is now new and it's some kind of way God did whatever. Any kind. But this is a comprehensive, continual unending uninterrupted work of God from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Ge uh, Revelation 22 this is God's work you see Adam was to be God's image bearer remember Genesis 1 26 let us make Adam man Adam A-D-A-M in, in Hebrew let us make man in our image after our likeness and he was to be carrying out four mandates there will be four mandates he will be carrying out. Remember in Genesis 128, through his obedience. This is what he's supposed to do. And all of you went through the other class, remember this. First, he was to be fruitful and multiply. You better have a lot of kids. A lot of kids. See, believers having children is more than just biology. It's about the duplication of Christ. That's what this is about. Not only having a whole lot of Kids, be fruitful and multiply, but fill the earth. Fill the earth. That the earth, entire earth, beginning in the garden and as Adam and Eve obeyed and as they had children, the garden's activity and the expansion of the garden throughout the whole rest of the world would occur so that one day the entire earth would become the habitation of God's person as God's temple on the earth. Subdue the earth. Subdue it. And then rule. Fruitful and multiply. What was the second one? Say it again. Fill the earth. What was the third one? Subdue it. And what was the fourth one? Rule. Those are the mandates that we see in Genesis 1.28. In the death of Jesus and his resurrection, Jesus, God fulfilled this creational intention so that today the church is God's new creational community. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone be in Christ, he or she, we what? Or a new creation. 
You see, the old that fell and collapsed in Adam's sin, that Jesus inaugurated in his death and resurrection, has now become ours in reality through the giving of the Holy Spirit when we were born again. And we are now part of that eternal work of God, which in his own mind was there before he ever created anything. We are part of that eternal intention and wisdom of God. If any man be in Christ, any person be in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold what? What? Old what? In Adam, fall, sin, death, destruction, illness, whatever. Old things have what? Passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, we're living in that positionally in Christ and spiritually. The only difficulty is we yet don't see the fulfillment practically yet. So it's, it is now, but it is not yet. You see, it's here, but it's coming in fulfillment. It's here, and we're getting tastes of it, but it's coming in fulfillment. By the will of God, Paul was called and commissioned and gifted by God. Remember Acts 26, 16, you'll see that. He gives, his, he gives his testimony. Jesus called me, and he says, hey, Paul, I'm going to use you, and here's how I'm going to do it. Just read Acts 26, and you'll see that in there. And finally, not only Paul was on this journey, but also Timothy, our brother. Paul has team mentality. Paul does not have the mentality of an individual believer. This is not, this individual stuff is not biblical. It's not. Biblical is team, is groups of people, families, a lot of folks together. Individuals certainly coming into this, but there is an individual corporate mentality, certainly made up of individuals, but individuals for the purpose of a corporate mentality. God's purpose and plan is not that we individually be saved and that, wow, me alone, just me and God and all that. No, that we be saved to be placed into a corporateness. Why? Because God in himself is a corporate being. He is a community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is relational. He is uh, of um, functions among the three persons of the Trinity in roles through love. All of this is who God is. <clears throat> and then when you see that, you begin to see why the Old Testament and the New Testament is so filled with these other and one another and love and relationships and forgiving and community and people. Why so much of this plural stuff? Because God is a plural being. That's why. You see, we are the earthly revelation in community of the heavenly revelation of community timothy a christian jew who was converted through the preaching of paul becomes one of paul's most prized workers next week we'll look at verse two thank you a lot